Well, good morning. How is everyone? Okay, we're going to be in Romans 5 and 2 Corinthians 5. I call them the high five chapters. So we're going to give these two a high five the next two weeks. How's that sound? The church as an embassy, the building of reconciliation where ambassadors are sent out. So this is number seven in our eight-part series on the building of the church. We're in the, now in the final building and embassy. So in Romans 5, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read beginning in verse 18, 18, 19, 20, 21, four verses. There you go. I'm glad I have fingers. <laughs> okay, here we go. Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then... Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from Romans, it's two books. To the right. Romans, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18. Paul writes, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again even just reading your word is alive and powerful. And Lord, we desire today to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So I pray you'd give us ears to hear. And Father, I'm asking that as I teach and instruct from your word, that you would break it fresh and feed us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Multiply it out, I pray. And we're thankful, Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit who continues to point us to Jesus Christ. And how much, Lord, this morning in talking about your death on the cross, that we might be reconciled to God. You who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through you. Thank you, Lord. 
We praise you. Give us now ears to hear and bless, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So these two chapters, and there are a couple other passages, but are really pinnacles of instruction when it comes to what Jesus accomplished on the cross in reconciling us to God. Reconcile means to be or become restored to favorable or friendly relations, relations with another when there was wrong. It means to win over to friendliness. It means to compose or settle a quarrel or dispute. It means to bring into agreement or harmony. And so God has reconciled us to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. The means of reconciliation is God's. The ministry and message of reconciliation is ours. And so this morning, we're going we're to focus in on the means of reconciliation. That is God. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And then the ministry and message and has committed to us the word or message of reconciliation. Now, another important passage is in Colossians. So if you would go to Colossians in your Bibles, I think it's really good to hear the pages going. You can't hear those iPhones and stuff, but if that's what you're doing, that's okay. Just do it, maybe press harder so we can hear. <laughs> Colossians 1.19. Colossians 1.19. For it pleased the Father... That in him all the fullness should dwell, that is Christ, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, look at this, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. It is an incredible truth that we're going to look at this morning, some doctrinal things that we need to understand and talk about as far as what God has done for us through the cross of Jesus Christ and ultimately our, us being reconciled will lead to him presenting us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Can I hear an amen? John Piper said this, I quote, Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, I love this little statement, a crucified God. Now that's packed. In fact, in Acts it says you killed the prince of life. A crucified God must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. We're talking about an embassy and ambassadors. We are sent out. What are we to be boasting about to the world? The cross of Christ. Now an American ambassador to a foreign country might put it this way. You have invited me to tell you about the duties of an ambassador. Let me begin by telling you first of the embassy, the place where we live. The embassy is a little spot of America set down in an alien land. 
On the walls, we have pictures of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the President of the United States with a big flag, old glory, high over everything. When we had prohibition in the U.S., we had prohibition in the embassy. Inside the embassy, the laws of our own country are supreme. We celebrate, well, Christmas. I don't know if they still do. We celebrate Thanksgiving, the 4th of July. Now, outside, it is different. We celebrate none of these. Let me repeat. The embassy is a little spot of America set down in an alien land. We, as the church, are an embassy. An embassy is the headquarters for the ambassadors. This is where he or she carries out their government's mission, communicates it. We are an embassy, the church, a little spot of the kingdom of God set down in an alien land. We are headquartered here as ambassadors. As ambassadors, we are sent out to carry out what our heavenly government's mission is all about. Can I say that again? As ambassadors, we are sent out to carry out what our government's mission is all about, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, centered on the cross in which he died for our sins and the sins of the world. So Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. That is the message of reconciliation that we take, the ministry given to us as the church. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, but God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are different. We are ambassadors bringing a little bit of heaven, if you will, the kingdom of God into an alien land. And so the means of reconciliation is God's. We had no means by which to reconcile ourselves to him. Now, as I thought about this, I thought about reconciling bank and credit card statements. Now, some of you operate without ever doing this. What someone told me after first service is that none of these young people balance their checkbooks. They don't even have checkbooks anymore. <laughs> now, others of you change some numbers to make it work. <laughs> now, I want to tell you something about myself. I can't do that. You know, I, I have to make these things um, balance, reconcile. There are debits and credits, withdrawals and deposits. And then there, then there are these little two-cent interest payments that wind up in my checkbook once in a while. I got to go, the two cents has to work too. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> Not from all of you. <laughs> I just have to balance it. I've just gotten done finally figuring out what was wrong with three of my accounts. And they were sitting in my bag for months. But I got to figure it out. Now, when I worked many years ago, right out of high school, I used to work at a stereo store. And they hired this bookkeeper, and she worked for the store, the, the business, for two years. Little did they know that for about six months, in, being into it about six months, she wasn't really a bookkeeper. And so when things didn't balance, she just changed the numbers. 
This went on for a year and a half. So when it was all done, she was gone and they were in a mess. Can I brag a little bit this morning? Thank you. <laughs> Those who oversee our finances at Calvary Chapel South, they are the most diligent, conscientious people that I know. Thank you, Shelly Ryan. Thank you to Dave Naren and Doug Clemmer and Kelly Coons. All the way along, we've tried to set up safeguards so that we make sure that there's no room for the enemy to come into the financial area of, our, of this ministry and begin to bring slight on the name of God. It happens too often. And so I want to tell you something. When Shelley's at the steering wheel of our books, they're going to balance and they're going to be reconciled. And it's fantastic to have such trust in those who are overseeing the finances of this church. Now, when I think of having been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, I think of God having erased all my debts with his deposits. I think that God could not fudge the numbers. He can't do that. He's a just God. He can't just try and make it work by changing some things. He is true to who he is. He cannot lie. Now, here's the other thing I think of. Neither could God just let it go. Can you hear an amen? In other words, we had a problem. We were bankrupt spiritually, dead in our trespasses and sins. We could do nothing about that. But God could not sit by until he took care of it. He never planned to. Right from the start, he gave the prophecy that the head, the head of the serpent would be bruised by the seed of the woman. Prophesying he was going to take care of our problem of bankruptcy as far as our relationship to God is concerned because of sin. John Stott said this. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. In other words, I am the great debtor. God is the great depositor. I am the great defaulter. God is the great imputer. I am the great sinner. God is the great Savior. Woo. He took care of it. He paid the debt. Justly. Mercifully. Graciously. Lovingly. And he offers it to anyone by the means of his son dying on a cross to pay the debt that we owed, the debt we could not pay, being buried, rose again the third day, is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession. He gave to us reconciliation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We had nothing to offer except a bankrupt life because of sin. 
Paul wrote to the Romans also. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is what accounted for righteousness. There's an accounting going on. God's accounting system is so fabulous, it's eternal. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness, he says it again, apart from works. What did David say? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Are you blessed this morning? Oh, man. You see, if I take a check to God that's signed with my signature, there's nothing there. Nothing there to cash in on. But signed by Jesus Christ, and I bring it to the bank of heaven, it unleashes, it releases to me all the funds of God in my life. All the riches of God given to me because the check was signed by Christ. He paid my debt. Now, I decided to start with the second half of Romans 5 this morning. I want to talk, first of all, about the wonderful person of reconciliation. That's O-N-E person. There's just one. Next week, the ambassadors, I want to talk to you about the wonderful promise. Excuse me, this morning, we're going to talk about the, also the wonderful promises of reconciliation. Two things this morning, sorry about that, in Romans 5. Next week, we'll get to the ambassador. So the wonderful person of reconciliation, that's O-N-E, and then secondly this morning, the one, what Christ won for us in reconciliation. You with me? So if you remember anything, remember one O-N-E and one W-O-N. Praise the Lord. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Therefore, just as through what? One man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, not all have sinned, all sinned. We are dealing with some very important doctrinal truth here. Federalism and original sin. Now, there is a false, dangerous teaching, which is called the moral government of God, that says Adam only sinned for himself. This says that we were born innocent, neutral. I am a sinner because I chose to sin. I alone am responsible for being a sinner. Adam had nothing to do with my sinful state. It says that one man could not make all of us sinners. It also means that one man could not make all of us righteous. Paul is teaching that both Adam and Christ were federal heads of a race. Adam, a race of sinners. Christ, a, ra a race of the righteous. Original sin is not talking about Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden. It refers to the result of the first sin, not the sin itself. Through one man, sin entered the world. Sin and death spread to all men through Adam. This is dealing with the doctrine of the fallen sinful nature of man that we inherit from Adam. We have, we have corrupted, sinful natures that the Bible speaks often about, Romans particularly. All sinned. 
We are not sinners because we sinned. We sin because we are sinners. I don't know if you want to amen that one. (laughs) We have a basic disposition toward sin, a bent towards sinning. Listen, any parent knows this. You don't have to teach your children to sin. Can I hear an amen? You get those little guys, and they're so precious, and they're always precious, but they're also precocious and many other things that we might pre their life with. Why? Charlotte, you're always good about pointing this out. When there are problems and things with kids, they're sinners. Really? They're sinners. You know, it just answers the question of what's the problem here? They're sinners. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. In other words, the discipline is because we love our children and we realize we've got to steer them away from the sinful, selfish tendencies inherited from Adam. And by the way, it's not just your children, it's you too. We were born in sin. Now, some think that this is unfair. Why are we held responsible for the sin of Adam? We hold up the placard in heaven. No damnation without representation. But listen, Adam is the federal head of the human race. He is the perfect representative. God chose him to be that. When he sinned, he sinned for the whole human race. Thank you very much, Adam. The fact of the matter is, Adam was a perfect representative. Now, here's where I would go as far as that's not fair. If we think it's not fair, even malicious, foolish, fallible, or malignant, if we think it's inaccurate, all it does is expose the fact that it's there. Why? Because all of a sudden we're charging a holy, righteous, perfect God with sin, with a fallacy, with a problem. We're assailing the integrity of God. We're assailing his word. It reveals our fallenness, really, is what it does. Adam's guilt was passed on to the whole of the human race. If you take this away, the federal headship of Adam, you also take away the federal headship of Christ. Christ is our representative, our federal head for justification before God. It is through representation we are saved. It is through the imputing of righteousness, the imputation that we are redeemed. Thank the Lord. It is just what God did. It's just for God to save on the basis of a representative. It's also just that God punishes on the same basis. So Paul is going to show how Adam is a type of Christ in the federal headship of the two lives. Adam, verse 14, Romans 5, who is a type of him who is to come. Now, he then goes into a, he has a long parenthesis here just to make sure that we understand something. There's many ways that they're not alike. And so from 13 to 17, you have this parenthesis. For until the law, sin was in the world. 
But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, what? Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even to those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So sin was in the world, even though the law was not there to expose that. When Adam sinned, he brought death into the world. Sin passed on through him. Death is the wages of sin, both physical and spiritual. Now, the spiritual was immediate. God, in his mercy, postponed the physical for a while because the race of Adam was to continue. God didn't just kill him right there and be done with it. It continued. They are not the same, though. In verse 12, sin entered the world through Adam, but in Christ, sin was dealt with in the world. In Adam, offense brought death. In Christ, grace brought the gift of eternal life. In Adam, verse 16, judgment came from one offense. In Christ, the free gift came from many offenses. I mean, it's an accounting system that you got to love. In verse 16, in Adam came condemnation. In Christ came justification. In Adam, verse 17, death reigned. In Christ, righteousness reigned to eternal life. So listen, it's not an equation. It's a parallel. It's a contrast. What Adam did was destructive. What Christ did was redemptive for us. We earned eternal death. We have been given eternal life. So now Paul shows how they are the same. And the key is, again, one man. Notice in verse 12, through one man sin entered the world. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to how many? All men, resulting in what? Justification of life, right with God, through Christ. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So the federal headship of both Adam and Christ, they're a type in that way. But in Adam, there was an offense and judgment. In Christ, there's a righteous act and free gift. In Adam, there's disobedience and sinners. In Christ, there's obedience and the righteous. Now, what side of the ledger would you like to be on? How would you like to account for your life before God? In Adam or in Christ? The power and impact of the second Adam, the power and impact of Jesus Christ as our headship. Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is of much greater impact what Christ did for us. The impact of Adam's sin was devastating, terrible, awful. We live with it. But the impact of what Jesus Christ did for us is eternal and it's infinite and it's complete. He did not deal with us according to our iniquities. He did not leave us in our sin. He brought us into this world that we might be redeemed by the blood of Christ and know him, know his love, know his mercy, know his grace, know his justification. And as we'll see today, know the promises that are ours because God has reconciled us to himself through the cross. And so God counteracts all the sin of man by his wonderful grace through the death of Jesus Christ 
on the cross, and through Jesus, he won for us the battle that we had no, nothing to fight with. He rectified it through Christ. And so we have these wonderful promises of our reconciliation. Back to verse 1. There are seven of them. Number one, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Do you have peace this morning? You see, it's not primarily here the peace of mind or soul or the tranquility of my heart. These things certainly follow. The peace of God results only from peace with God. If I don't have peace with God, I will not know the peace of God. We were rebels against God in our sinful, fallen state. We wanted nothing to do with him. The Bible declares that we have a built-in hostility toward God. We are naturally estranged from God, aliens and strangers. Our sinful nature's inclination is against God and against his word. But some will say, well, I'm not against God. I'm an agnostic. Or I'm indifferent. But let me say this. Nobody gets hostile against some nebulous concept of a supreme being. And people fashion God in ways that they're not accountable. Some cosmic image, hazy as it is. No one rises up against that. But what happens when we're talking about a personal God who requires an accounting? What happens then? We see it all around us what happens then. What happens? Well, that all depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. You see, God's offered to us reconciliation. He's given to the church the ministry of reconciliation. That is the message of reconciliation, which God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. There's only one way to have my sins forgiven, my debt paid, canceled, redeemed, and forgiven. It's through the blood of Christ shed for me. No wonder Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ, through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. There's only one release from the debt. And that's through Christ. This is the peace with God. You know what it is? It's the declaration, the war is over. It's finished. Jesus on the cross said that it is finished. Literally, the debt is paid. Released. Jesus told a parable about the guy that said, you know, he owes me this much. So he gave a little parable and said, well, there was a guy that had a debt. It was incredibly it was more than he could ever pay. And he went to the master and said, Lord, I'll pay you when I can, but please have mercy on me. And so because he had compassion on me, he forgave the whole debt, which was impossible to pay. Well, the one who was forgiven then went to the one who owed him just a little, you know, kind of a couple nickels. And he took him by the throat and he threw him into jail. He said, you pay me what you owe me. And the comparison there that Jesus gives is, hey, you were forgiven such great debt. A debt you couldn't pay. And are you going to hold others accountable to their debt? Oh. Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We had nothing to offer God. It was a debt we could not pay. 
And so Paul says, by the deeds of law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. We have peace with God. Any peace dependent on my works is a very fragile peace at best. When I am doing well, I have peace. But when I'm not doing so well, when I'm messing up, peace escapes me like a vapor. But Paul said, now the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law. It's not works. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to how many? All who believe in him. We were justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God, not because I've had something to give God to appease him. It's a sad thing, but many of the religions, the gods that they worship, have to be appeased continuously. We couldn't appease God with our sinfulness. We had nothing to offer him. But he, through Christ, took care of our problem. And therefore, we were justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we have peace with God. Secondly, we have access into this grace. Verse 2 again. Access means introduction. It means to be presented. Do you remember when you got saved? Do you remember when you came bankrupt to God, having nothing to offer him, and Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? You know what you were presented with? The grace of God. Access to this grace was wide open. The hostility has ceased, and it's though we sit down in peace with God. And Ephesians says, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us, here it is, sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. We sat down. It's, the, it's, it's an idea of repose where the, where the war's over. It's done. There's no more battle anymore because God has taken care of the problem. And now we realize he's for us, not against us. We, we, we run up the sur surrender flag. You know, and our enemies, normally, that's what would be a, some of these religions, you, you run up the surrender flag and you're in trouble, man. Because you haven't done this, haven't done that, haven't done You raise the surrender flag before Christ and all of a sudden you're presented with the grace of God. Given what we don't deserve. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He doesn't stop there. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Wow. Why wouldn't you surrender to such a God as this? says, in the ages to come, he's going to show us the exceeding riches of his grace. We have access into this grace. His grace. You know, I, you know what I look at life as? That this life is the title page of a masterpiece that God's going to be showing us. My life, what I live, this vapor, it's just the, 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 the title page of all that God's going to show me. The exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. We have access into this grace. The free gift is not like the offense. Verse 15. Notice here, the grace and much more is always coupled. 
We did not deserve this. How much more? Notice in verse 15, the free gift is not like offense, for by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God. And the gift of the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to many. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace superabounded, literally, or abounded much more. Which side of the ledger do you want to be on? So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Third, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because we've been reconciled to God. These promises that are ours. He gets to the therefore in verse 12. But before that, he's laying out these things that are ours because of what Christ did in reconciling us to God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You know, even a cursory assessment of the world in which we live, a flyover, there is no hope that things are going to get better. I'm actually somewhat awestruck by people who think they are. This world is getting more corrupt all the time. There's no hope in this world that we'll ever be at peace. We're at war continuously. I'm in the process of watching this thing called the World Wars. It's a three-part, two-hour each section put on the History Channel. War is a, is a, is a bad thing. And yet, we, do we expect to have peace in this world? There's no way until the Prince of Peace comes. Our Prince of Peace, he's going to put an end to all this. But until that time, the world is not getting better. It's full of wars and rumors of wars as Jesus said it would be. The world is falling apart. I don't think of myself as a pessimist. I just think I'm a realist. And the reason that we can be realists is because we know God and God's a realist. Can I hear an amen? And he told us what it was going to be like because of sin and what sin brought into the world. Death, alienation from God, rebellion against God, selfishness, and all the things that we're seeing are just, it's like they're mounting up like a huge tidal wave. And one day God's going to release the dam, if you will, and this world is going to be taken away and swept up in its evil. And brothers and sisters, when I'm watching this thing, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, evil men. Paul told Timothy, evil men will arise, be more and more evil men. I'm going to be careful of my soapbox here. We do not hope in this world. We hope in the glory of God. We hope in that future promised glory of God. Psalm 145, can I read you just the many passages we could go to? Psalm 145, 10. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. See, that's what ambassadors are doing. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. 
That's the glory. Can you hear an amen? That's the glory that we're looking forward to. Now, he says we glory in tribulations. That's coming up. That's a different kind of glory. We're looking at the glory of God. We, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You know, when God is glorified, things are going to be okay. If God is lifted up and glorified in our lives, things are okay. Daniel, in prophesying forward, said, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one that shall not be destroyed. There's a coming kingdom. The kingdom also is among us where God is glorified and God reigns. Do you know the peace of God? Access to the grace of God. Glorying in hope of the glory of God. You see, we have peace with God. We can look back and realize the war's over. We have access into his grace. We can look up to God who reconciled us by his grace. And then we rejoice in hope. We can look forward to our final destiny, the glorious kingdom of God. Now, there are four more. We glory in tribulations. Now, I've said this before, but the thought that comes to mind, now, Paul, you're going too far here. Glory and tribulations? I mean, come on. I'm going to glory, yes, but tribulations? But it wasn't just Paul that wrote that. Jesus said it. James said it. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute and say all manner of evil against you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward. Where? In heaven. See, in the tribulations, we are rejoicing in that it's temporal. What we suffer here, there's no comparison. Whatever it might take is worth every bit of it. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes. We glory because God is not against us. He is for us. Nothing happens in our lives but that God himself allows it. We are not rejoicing in sufferings themselves, but in the beneficial results in what tribulation produces. Each trial is an opportunity for God to work. Each tribulation God can work in. The trials of a godless, hostile world are difficult, are they not? But in these things that we face, God is at work. God can work to bring about a precious result, producing fruit in our lives. Now, there are those things of the world that are difficult, and trials come because of it. But then there's those trials that come along because of me. Anger, unforgiveness, hard heart. And so I call to mind what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. What did he say? First be reconciled 
to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I can be a bad brother sometimes. We have these interpersonal relationships and God's saying the reconciliation has to be seen there as well. How many trials have you been through because of broken relationships and anger, resentment, unforgiveness? I thought of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul said, now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. See, here's where, we're, where we are very challenged. We glory in tribulations. See, what God wants to do in our personal relationships is do such a work in our hearts that we understand what it takes to reconcile. And if God can reconcile us to himself, he then puts upon us the responsibility to reconcile our relationships with one another. Is that easy? Oh, yeah, it's a piece of cake. <laughs> telling you, the world's tribulations pale in comparison to the things that I go through in my relationships with people. You go through. It's the ultimate test of what reconciliation really means. And if we've been reconciled to God, then we need to be reconciling with one another. You see, tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character. I wish it said that tribulation produces character. It doesn't say that. The most difficult thing in the world is to continue patiently working through things, and through that, character is developed. The very endurance we need in suffering is produced by suffering. It's much like the antibodies are released in the body when there's an infection. God's antibodies in our relationships is reconciliation. Now, I've been around long enough to know <laughs> there aren't any easy answers. There aren't. Difficult. It goes the way of our sin and then suffering and all these things. But I want to say to you this morning, persevere. 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 Because through that perseverance, it produces character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God, the, third, the fifth thing, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who is given to us. Hope does not disappoint. That word disappoint, it's when an expectation or hope is not met. On a human level, expectations are a setup for disappointment. On the human level, expectations kill relationships. But it's not so on the divine level. On that level, the Christian disappointment is temporal. Hope springs eternal. Listen to what Paul said leading up to 2 Corinthians 5. In chapter 4, verse 15, 
For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And Paul in 2 Corinthians opened his heart to the Corinthians and said, here's all I've gone through. Here's all the tribulation, all the trials, all the difficulties. You see, this hope will not disappoint. Now, let's be real this morning a little bit, if you don't mind. In this life, when there are sudden disappointment of a hope, it can leave a scar which the ultimate fulfillment of that hope never entirely removes. That's reality. Listen to what Martin Luther King said, and he knew disappointment. He said, There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. And I take that to mean that where there is deep love, there will be deep disappointment. The difficulty and pain when we love someone is so much greater in our relationships. And there are things that have come along in all of our lives, and we realize, you know, there's scars there. There's difficulty there. And in this life, We hope, yes, in the glory of God. We glory in tribulations because through that, God is producing character. And that character is then giving us hope in the love of God, not the love that I lack. And God, through the Holy Spirit, continually pours out his love to us. It's like the Holy Spirit can't stand to be, the Holy Spirit just wants to keep on talking about the love of God. Now, let's not leave out this reality also. Revelation chapter 7. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. (laughs) I can't wait for that. Some of you are here this morning, and maybe it's not physical tears, but in your heart and in the quietness of your solitude, your solitariness, being alone, you're weeping this morning. Because things have happened in your life and there's scars and damage done. I don't know how God's going to do it, but the Bible says he's going to wipe away every tear. And do you know when you wipe away someone's tears, that's very intimate. God's going to come up and just wipe the tears of this life. Revelation 21 God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. Why? The former things have passed away. How will God do that? I don't know, but I can't wait for him to wipe away my tears. My sorrow. Can you dig it? The Holy Spirit in our lives is ministering this truth to us that God loves us and ultimately he will take care of these things. He's going to make things right. He's going to remove things that are wrong and we're going to stand with him complete in Christ. 
two more simply. Number six, we're saved from wrath. Verses 9 and 10, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then finally in verse 11, we rejoice in God. What a place to land. It's in God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Amy Carmichael said this, and I close with this quote. God, hold us to that which drew us first. When the cross was the attraction, and we wanted nothing else. Amen. Stand, let's pray together and We'll worship, and if you would like some prayer this morning, there'll be people up front here that would love to join you at the throne of grace, praying for those things that you need. And so, Lord, we stand together in this embassy, realizing, God, afresh this morning what you have done for us. You've given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to to them, to us. We thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus being that representative, the perfect man who had no sin, knew no sin, but you made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now that we also glory in tribulations. Oh Lord, we cry out to you. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And Lord, this hope that we have does not disappoint because, Lord, all along the way, you're pouring out of your love to us whom you've reconciled to yourself. Demonstrate on the cross that love, but then, Lord, as we go along in life and tribulation comes and perseverance is needed and character is being forged, you instill us afresh with your love that does not disappoint. The hope that we have is that, Lord, you who began the good work in us will complete it. And so, Lord, my prayer is, this is an embassy and we ambassadors, is that somehow you take fresh hold of our hearts, that this word of reconciliation would so burn in our hearts, knowing what you've done for us. So Paul said that your love constrained him, that he gloried in the, in the cross, so we want to do the same. And we stand together, Lord, and we say, send me. Grant me, Lord, a new, a new freshness for just what you accomplished on that cross. You paid a debt we could not pay. Thank you, Lord. Let's worship you.